All right, uh, let's dig into the final part of this series. Uh, chapter eight of Acts is where we're gonna be in the Bible, um, and your study guides have all the passages that I'm gonna refer to and read in this message. And the question that this uh, um, chapter in Acts and the story we're gonna explore, the question it really raises is who belongs in church? Who belongs with Jesus? Who belongs in heaven? And I know that the knee-jerk reaction of those of us who are polite Southerners, most of us, like, yeah, everyone belongs, but we really don't believe that. Like, until Christ takes over your heart completely, you're going to carry around with you certain biases. And there are going to be people who are on the outside looking in for you. Regardless of where you draw your lines, everybody draws their lines somewhere. Again, until Christ completely takes over your heart and the spirit of God just cleans house completely. That's a process we're in. Most of us have not reached total holiness yet. And so we still are gonna have parts of us that remain judgmental and uh, that wanna keep certain people out. And I don't have to go through the list. You have your people you wanna keep out, I have mine. But the point of today's message, I hope, is that we can understand that the shame of that situation, the shame of that reality isn't on the people we would keep out. It's on us. Because it's fairly clear from Jesus' own words that his mission was to come and offer salvation and offer redemption and offer belonging to the whole world, to everyone regardless of where they're from, what they look like, how they identify, their orientation, anything else that people argue tooth and nail about these days was a no-brainer for Jesus. Everyone belongs if they want to belong. Everyone can belong. And so um, in this, in this uh, world, in this church that we live in today, oftentimes we boil it down to like someone's sin and the sins that they don't, they don't repent of, and that's what makes someone not belong. I hope we can hear the hypocrisy when we make justifications like that. Because if that's how God decides who belongs, I don't want to know where I stand. Because I live daily with unrepentant sin in my life, and I don't even feel that bad about it. So I covet most of y'all's cars. Is that a sin? Yes. I take your kids, my kids to play at your house with your kids and we leave and my kids are like, Daddy, why can't we live in a house like that? And sin enters my heart. <laughs> and I think that's the way I'm supposed to feel. It's not. Listen, that's, that's one of the top 10. That's coveting. Thou shalt not covet, right? I, I deal with all sorts of issues, you know, like, like, Sinful things. I, I have lust in my heart. Jesus said, if you have lust in your heart, you might as well have committed adultery. So you can blame me. You can blame Halle Berry. One of us is to blame, but I have lust in my heart. Okay, sometimes, not all the time, not right now. We're in church. It's inappropriate, but sometimes, you know what I mean? So we all have these issues that are really unrepented sins, like we haven't turned from them yet, and yet Jesus still says you belong because Jesus' way with us isn't to say, go figure it out, then come to us. So go figure it out and come to me. Go figure it out, come to church. Go figure it out, maybe you can come to heaven. 
He says, come to me and let's figure it out. Come to me and if your heart earnestly desires what I have to offer, what grace I have to give you, then we can figure out and clean house, even if it takes a long time, you can trust Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. Now, in the first church, uh, it was very clear who belonged because um, they basically inherited a system that um, was drawn along religious and ethnic lines. And so the first Christians were all um, Jewish guys and gals. Not all of them were in good standing, but they were Jewish people. So you had prostitutes and tax collectors. We talk about that a lot, but they were Jewish prostitutes and tax collectors. And so they identified in that way. And so by virtue of their being born into Judaism, or in some rare cases having converted into Judaism, if they believed Jesus was the chosen Jewish Messiah, then they became basically Jews for Jesus. The first Christians fell into that category, all of them. And so the question on my mind this week is how in the world, after the, the movement grew so radically in the first few weeks of its existence among, exclusively among Jewish people who believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, how did it become a global phenomenon, the likes of which the world has never seen? The only multinationals reached every nation in the world almost and speaking every language in the world almost and, and every culture and every place, like you can go anywhere and find Jesus there. How did we get to this place from where Christianity began? The first step in that transformation of the church as basically a radical Jewish Sunday school class, meeting in synagogues and in the temple, to what we have today is today's story which I believe is one of the most important, impactful, transformational stories in the whole New Testament. It changed my life when I realized what it really meant. And I hope that it will change yours as well. This is from Acts chapter eight. We'll start in verse 26. And uh, I'm gonna read chunks of the passage at a time and stop and do a little bit of teaching. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in, the, in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. First of all, uh, Bible nerds, if you know the names of the 12 disciples Jesus chose, you know Philip was one of them. This is not the same Philip. Just FYI, not that it really matters, but this is not the Apostle Philip. This is Philip the Evangelist, as history calls him, and he was known for evangelizing and starting churches and, and raising up new disciples his whole life. Here, he's being sent out of Jerusalem, which is part of what happened in chapter 7. Um, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was executed um, before uh, Paul, who became the Apostle Paul, like uh, he oversaw the execution of the first Christian martyr. And then the church scattered. It was Jerusalem-based and Jewish-centric, and then it scattered for fear of persecution. But it scattered just like Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1. So I think um, the Spirit is sending 
uh, Philip out of Jerusalem as part of that scattering, as part of that diaspora, the Christian diaspora out of Jerusalem. And the Spirit tells Peter to go up and talk to this eunuch that he hears reading from the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot. I don't know if the Spirit has ever told you anything. If it has, if he has, you probably uh, didn't tell a lot of people because um, we don't like to say that we hear voices. And maybe you don't hear the Spirit talking to you in a voice, but that doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't talk to you or lead you or compel you to take note of people in your sphere of influence. I think sometimes we um, don't realize, like we should, that our conscience can be the Spirit of God speaking to us. Sometimes I think um, we fail to see uh, that when we walk by faith, something as simple as running into the same person, coincidentally, all the time, could be actually a spirit-led opportunity. Maybe even that, those random events aren't so random, and maybe that is the spirit nudging you to speak to that person, to let that person know you see them, you take note of them, you appreciate them. Um, and, And that is sometimes what it means to listen to the spirit. Now, uh, in this story, Philip hears the Spirit tell him to go and speak to this or run alongside this Ethiopian eunuch. I want to talk for a minute about eunuchs, and uh, this is not super comfortable, this next part. And um, this is a children's ministry Sabbath, and so the kids are with us in the room today, and so I'm going to be very delicate with this next part. But history has shown us quite a bit about um, and taught us quite a bit about the reality of eunuchs in the ancient world and not so ancient world either. This is a picture of a 19th century eunuch who worked in the royal court in the Ottoman uh, Empire and uh, eunuchs were known to be royal sort of emissaries or caretakers, um, really glorified slaves in royal courts as recently as the 20th century, the early 20th century. And uh, the reality of eunuchs uh, and the history of eunuchs is a very dark one. Um, What would happen going all the way back to like 2000 BC, um, boys would be orphaned um, and taken in by the royal court or the royal guard and they would be cared for and looked after until they were of a certain age. Or um, if they were not orphaned, sometimes really, really poor Families, parents would sell their boys to royal courts for the purpose of uh, survival, right? And, uh, and the boys would be kept uh, in the keep and taken care of until they were eight or so, eight years old or so. And it's around eight years old that the historical records show us that boys would be taken into a surgical <laughs> procedure where they would, um, without the benefit of uh, anesthetic or antiseptic, they would be held down by three or four grown men and uh, part of their genitals would be removed um, with one swipe at the blade usually. Uh, It was an awful, awful, painful, life-altering, unforgettable, defining experience. To think what these boys went through I have a boy who's nine, and to think to, anytime he cries a little, like I freak out, it just breaks my heart, and to think of the cries of these boys. The pain of the procedure itself was bad enough, but the pain of the few days that followed when they couldn't urinate for days on end was even worse. 
One in four boys, it's estimated by historians and archaeologists, died as a result of these procedures. The ones that survived were um, forced to live the rest of their lives in slavery. And they were given certain responsibilities as eunuchs. The word eunuch comes from two Greek words that mean um, bed guard. And so their most uh, off. Uh, their, their, their most frequent job, I guess, would be to guard the beds of the king's harem because who better to guard your beautiful young wives than a eunuch? There's not a lot of a threat there. And I was thinking this week about that phenomenon. I was, I was at an Astros baseball game with some friends and it was a, kind of a dud of a game and so we found ourselves talking about all sorts of things uh, among which was somehow we started talking about which of the Houston Astros players would we least like our wives to spend one-on-one -on -one time with. <laughs> and um, it was a unanimous vote among the four of us, Jake Marisnik, clearly <laughs> the Astro that we would not want our wives to spend any time with. He is a ruggedly handsome individual. I wouldn't trust myself with him, <laughs> much less my beautiful wife. And so, uh, you know, if you had a wife or if you had a harem of wives, like who would you rather look after them? Some big, burly, warrior-looking, masculine man or Lord Varys from Game of Thrones? Like, uh, which would it be? Um, the choice is clear. And that's why eunuchs have historically been put in charge of king's harems. This eunuch was given a different job. The one in uh, this story from Acts 8 was not put in charge of a harem. He was put in charge of the queen's treasury, the queen of Ethiopia. Ethiopia was not a small African country. It was a great African kingdom that spanned many current day uh, countries. And um, the queen had her treasury and a eunuch could be trusted with the treasury for similar but different reasons because he had no competing interests, no conflicting interests. He had no mouths to feed at home. Why would he steal? And if he did, he could just be done away with, disposed of, because eunuchs were easily disposable. No one was waiting for them to come home. And I only say that not to shock you or to make you feel bad. I just want you to know who this man was as he rode in his chariot from Jerusalem, reading the scroll of Isaiah. He had been in Jerusalem, it says, worshiping God. The only reason to go to Jerusalem for worship was to worship the Jewish God, which raises all kinds of questions like, why would a foreign Ethiopian eunuch ride his chariot to Jerusalem to worship God? It's possible that he actually worshiped God. The, the Bible mentions several times Gentile God-fearers that, that actually loved the Hebrew God but didn't convert to Judaism. They just paid homage to him. But it's more likely, I think, because this man would not have been given a will of his own to go and worship whatever God he chose. He was sent as a royal emissary from the queen of Ethiopia to go and pay homage at a high holy season to a neighboring, you know, wasn't a nation, but sort of a nation, uh, and their people's God, right? So I think it was more of a political thing. But one thing is sure, whenever he went to the temple, he would not been, have been allowed to go in the temple to worship like all the other men worshiped. He wouldn't even be allowed on the inner outer circle where um, sinful men and women worship together. He, he would be on the outer outer circle looking in, and that's where he was kept at arm's length. And still he has an interest, interest enough to take a scroll back with him and read aloud from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip hears the 
eunuch as he reads. One thing is for sure, Philip would have assumed that this man could be a friend, this man could be a nice guy, but this man could not be a Christian. Because all the first Christians were Jews, all the first Christians were Israelites, all the first Christians were olive-skinned Mesopotamian people. There were no black Christians, and if you're interested, there were no white Christians yet either. And so this man, um, for many reasons, could not have belonged, not least of which was the fact that he uh, was castrated. Uh, it says numerous times in Philip's Bible, the word of God, the Old Testament, it says, like in Deuteronomy 23, 1, that no one who has been castrated or emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, if you want to dig into that and figure out why in the world God's word would say that at all, this seems punitive. It's like adding insult to injury. Why would you cut these guys out of the community? You can come back at 5 o'clock to the Q&A service, and we can talk about it. I'm sure somebody will raise that question. There are reasons for it there. Not that I agree with him, but I think there are reasons. And Philip would have known that those passages were there would have known that that was a disqualifier, a deal breaker for God. Philip knew this guy was a eunuch somehow, probably uh, by way of his voice, his high-pitched, testosterone-deprived voice. Eunuchs also had a certain look about them, elongated faces usually and long, frail bodies. They were taller than average and they suffered from osteoporosis for lack of testosterone as well. So it was sometimes easy to tell. And he knew that this man was not allowed to participate in the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading. Acts 8, verse 30 to 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. Pay attention here. This is important. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Excuse me. I want you to think about this passage, this passage that the eunuch was reading, but not from your own vantage point. I want you to hear it with the ears of the eunuch. Try your best to be empathetic here and listen to the passage from his point of view. How do you think that a savior, a hero, a messiah who stood silent before his shearers like a lamb before one holding a blade, how do you think that a hero with no descendants to speak of, one who would never be married, one who lived in humiliation, One who bore the scars of a curse that he never wanted or earned. How do you think this Messiah resonated with this eunuch 
whose entire life was defined by the moment that he stood silent before his shearers, a victim of injustice with no one to stick up for him, innocence embodied an eight-year-old boy. How do you think the news of Jesus, a savior who would suffer humiliation, shame, and even death, would resonate with a man like this? He wanted to know more. Who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip told him the whole story of Jesus. When he says in this next passage, when he, when he says in, his next, in this next passage, what's to prevent me? I want you to hear what he's really asking. This is very short. He says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? So as part of the story of Isaiah to Jesus, Philip told the eunuch all about baptism. Just to stand in the way of my being baptized. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. The eunuch's question was not rhetorical. He expected to be excluded. He had been excluded his whole life. It was all he ever knew. And as good as Jesus sounded, he was waiting for the other shoe to drop. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And hear me when I say, as good a man as I believe Philip was, I also believe that there were any number of things that he would have been expected to say in response. Things that no one would have blamed him for saying, things that good Christians like us today still find ourselves saying, things like, oh man, I'm sorry but I'm gonna to need to pray about this for a minute. I love you, but, or you know, this is, what, this is what the Bible says. And as best I can tell, uh, you don't fit. Deuteronomy 23, one. I'm sorry, oh man, I love you, but. You know, he could have said, uh, you know, you got to be one of us to be with Jesus. You got to be a Jew. And as best I can tell, under the circumstances, circumcision seems unlikely. Perhaps. He could have said other things. He could have said, you know, um, I, I hear you. Uh, and I appreciate your request, but you know, you don't look like the rest of us. If Philip baptized this eunuch, he would have become the first black Christian. In fact, not to spoil the ending for you, spoiler alert, later on in Acts, in Acts 13, we are introduced to this eunuch by name. After he is baptized, he is called by name among the Christians, Simeon. Simeon called Niger, 
which was his nickname. A lot of the first Christians had nicknames. And this is a little bit sensitive in our world today. You wouldn't call him this today, but the first Christians called Simeon the black one. That's what Niger means. Now, that's delicate. I understand, but you have to understand, Simeon was the only one. He was the only one, and apparently they were close enough to talk like this with each other, maybe. You shouldn't do the same, probably. I shouldn't either. I'm just reading. So, Simeon called Niger. And he's a leader. He's not just like a bystander. He's blessing Paul as he goes out on his first apostolic mission. <laughs> he's the one praying over the apostle Paul, right? And so there are all kinds of things that Philip could have said in, you know, good faith, more or less, to this question, what is to prevent me from being baptized? But he says nothing. Because that's the answer. Nothing. Nothing is to prevent him from being baptized. Because as weird as he might seem, as different and other and strange as his life might look, even though his lifestyle doesn't fit with Philip's, Philip knows the love and grace of Jesus so well at this point in his life that he is fully aware that as weird as this Ethiopian eunuch seems relative to himself, he seemed much weirder to Jesus when Jesus came for him. And this is a universal truth. No matter how weird someone might seem to you, no matter how off-putting their life or lifestyle might look to you, no matter how you think they don't belong for whatever reason in the community of God, however weird they feel in relationship to you, it pales in comparison to how weird you look to the holiness of God when he came to claim you. So what is to prevent anyone from being baptized and belonging? Nothing. Not because we're nice, because Jesus is God. The power of the story comes from the realization that in the early church, baptism meant belonging. And unless you've ever felt cut off, unless you've ever felt alone, forsaken, you might not get the power of this. You might not understand what it felt like for that eunuch to go down into the water an orphan and to come out of the water a brother and a son again. That's the power of the gospel. He went down into the water all alone in life and came out of the water with a community, a family, a purpose. That's what baptism meant then and that's what it means today. Now, as early as the second century, Christian leaders were lauding Simeon called Niger. Not just for his courage in being baptized, but for his leadership. Simeon, it would seem, took the gospel into Africa. And he wasn't the only black Christian for very long. Somehow, over these many years, one 
Ethiopian eunuch who was cut off in every way has become more Christians on that continent than people living in the United States. And by 2025, there will be 633 million people following Jesus who can trace their faith back to their father, Simeon, who was said to have no descendants. This is the power of God. Dorothy Day was a Christian activist, and she once said that I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. <laughs> For the sake of this series, I might edit that a little bit and say, you only really love God as much as you love the weirdest person in your life. Sometimes we Christians crave normalcy and homogeneity. We want to be around people like us. We want to feel like church is full of people that we want to be like. And what that turns into over time is sort of a self-righteous bunch of normal-looking people with normal families and normal jobs, and we're all keeping up appearances. And I pray that the church, our church, would never become that. And I pray that for two reasons. First, because there's no such thing as a normal church full of normal people with normal kids and normal families and normal marriages, because really all that is is people who are better at keeping secrets than other people. <laughs> Just better liars when we try to be normal. It's a delusion. But I also pray that prayer that we would never become that so that the weirdest person you know might darken our doors one day and feel right at home. That's the cry of my heart. And that's what convicts me too because I've still got people in my life that I think are just a little too weird. It's maybe not worth it. And that's my sinful nature. The Spirit's still cleaning up. God, forgive me. And God, show me how to reach out to that person in love. Because when you believe the gospel, you believe everyone belongs. I remember... Uh, Years back, when we were in the gym still. The story started in the gym across the parking lot, if you didn't know that. And I remember serving communion, and there was always this guy coming forward, this uh, guy in his 30s, upper 30s, maybe lower 40s, and um, he seemed old back then. He doesn't seem that old to me anymore. Uh, <laughs> he used to come forward for communion, and he always came with his arms folded. And what that means it, it is he wants to look like he's Participating, but he doesn't think he's worthy of the elements, the bread and the juice, because of something that he's done. Um, sometimes what it meant over there before we started serving gluten-free bread is uh, that bread will kill me or something. You know, like, so I'm not going to do it. But I'm still going through the motions. And so I, I asked people that came to me like this what, what was on their mind or whatever, how I can pray for them, in case they needed a gluten-free bread and, you know, we'd find some or whatever. And... Uh, I asked this guy, and he said, uh, I said, what's up? Why can't you take communion today? And he said, I'm sorry, Father, I'm divorced. And so I told him two things. And the first thing I said is, if you ever, ever call me Father again, You will never get this communion 
I'm just kidding. I didn't say that part. But uh, I did tell him I'm not a father, and that weirds me out. Y'all don't do that to me. All right. And the other thing I told him was this is the body of Christ, and it's broken for you. Take it and eat it. And this is the blood of Christ, and it was poured out for you. Christians, can we stop getting in our own way? Can we stop pretending like we were worthy of love when Jesus came for us, but someone else isn't? If you believe the gospel, every one belongs. And there is nothing to prevent you or the weirdest person in your life from being baptized because of Jesus our weird savior and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, free us from our self-righteousness. Set us free from ourselves and the ways that we set up boundary lines around us to protect ourselves from uncomfortable or inconvenient situations and people. Help us instead to love outside our comfort zones and to love each one and every one you put in our path. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.